Would you grab your Bibles and open to Acts chapter 4? Acts chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew back in front of you. I would love for you to follow along. And if you don't own a hard copy of the Scriptures, feel free to take that one home with you. We would be glad to replace it. We would love for you to have a hard copy of the Scriptures to be able to read on your own. And so feel free to take that one. We're getting back into the book of Acts after a four-week hiatus digging into the practice of generosity that came out of the book of Acts, but we're going to continue now back into the book of Acts, walking through verse by verse, chapter by chapter uh, for the rest of the summer, a little bit into the fall, and then we'll take another break and then uh, pick it up again a little bit later. We'll just kind of keep working our way through. And as we do that, let me reorient you back both where we've come out of from Acts chapter 3 as well as some of the overall big themes of the text that we're going to come back to again and again, because we actually find all three of those themes in Acts chapter 3. So if you were with us a month and a half ago when we were in Acts chapter 3, you remember that Peter and John were walking to temple, and that's the the first mega theme that you're going to see throughout the book of Acts, is that normal people are doing normal things. That's it. We look at it 2,000 years later, recorded by Luke in the Bible, and they seem like supernatural things that are happening. And there certainly was supernatural work, but the supernatural work flowed through normal people doing normal things. Like literally, it is, there is nothing more normal than two Jewish guys walking to temple. Like that's as normal as it gets. And they're, they're talked to, accosted kind of, by a lame man who's asking for money. Again, as normal as it gets, this would have been a scene throughout the first century that would have been very, very typical, playing out over and over again. So there's this lame man asking for money, Peter and John walking to temple, normal people doing normal things. And when they are approached by this man, if you remember the story, they were asked for money and they famously said, silver and gold we do not have, but what we do have we give to you. And they took the man's hand and they said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And this man stands up, his ankles and his feet and his legs are strengthened, and he begins to walk, which is the next theme that you're going to see throughout the scriptures, that there's expectant prayer happening with the supernatural move of God expected. Expected. They just expected that that would happen. There was this expectant posture, and I'm using that word advisedly because tonight and next week we're going to have these events that we're calling expectant. In that same model of saying, you know what, we we have a busy life, we organize a lot of stuff, there's a lot of agenda and structure to the stuff that we do, rightly so, but we don't create a lot of space where we can just be in the presence of God and expect that he'll meet us there. And that's what tonight's about, that's what next week's about, and that's what you find throughout the book of Acts. The church of Jesus gathered together and they expected that the Holy Spirit was going to move among them that God was going to do something powerful and unique. And they didn't always know what it was, but they expected that God would move. That's what happened with Peter and John. They expected that he would move. And the third theme that you're going to see over and over again throughout the book is that they were a community on mission. They didn't have the mission of community. Now, that's a kind of wordplay, but I want you to understand that it's, it's easy for us as the church of the 21st century in America, which is a very individualistic culture, maybe the most individualistic culture throughout history, um, it's easy for us to see the mission of community as a worthy goal. It's hard to be in community with one another. It's work for us to be in community with one another. But in the book of Acts, the goal was not community, 
The goal was mission. The vehicle was community. And that's what we're called into as well, that we would be community, yes, but not for the end of community, but for the end of the glory of God, the mission that he's called us to. And community is just a means to that end. It's an important means, but it's just a means to that end. And we see that as Peter and John bring this man up and all of the hubbub and furor that follows as he starts to run around and all the excitement that comes from that, Peter and John don't fade into the background. They, they don't kind of go hide. Peter gives his second evangelistic sermon in two chapters. So if you're keeping track, two chapters, two evangelistic sermons. You should keep track because you're going to see a third one in a third chapter here in just a minute. So Peter is ready to give an answer. Like this happens and everybody's around and he says, okay, we're not just going to talk to each other now. We're a community that's on mission. And so let me explain to you what just happened. Let me explain to you who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. That declaration, that sermon of Peter's has a response. The first one in Acts chapter 2 had the response of 3,000 men and their families coming to faith. The second one also has a response, but it's not quite as singular. So I'm going to ask you to listen. Amanda's going to come and read for us Acts chapter 4, 1 to 22. I want you to listen to the response and then the way that that unfolded. This is from the New Living Translation, so it'll be a little different than what you have in your pew. When Peter and John were speaking to the people, they were confronted by the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and some of the Sadducees. These leaders were very disturbed that Peter and John were teaching the people that through Jesus there is a resurrection of the dead. They arrested them, and since it was already evening, they put them in jail until morning. But many of the people who heard their message believed it. So the number of men who believed now totaled about 5,000. The next day, the council of all the rulers and elders and teachers of the religious law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, along with Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other relatives of the high priest. They brought in the two disciples and demanded, demanded, By what power or in whose name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers, Rulers and elders of our people, are we being questioned today because we have done a good deed for a crippled man? Do you want to know how he was healed? Let me clearly state to all of you and to all the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, the man you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. For Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures where it says the stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. The members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John. For they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing right there among them, there was nothing the council could say. So they ordered Peter and John out of the council chamber and conferred among themselves. What should we do with these men, they asked each other. We can't deny that they have performed a miraculous sign, and everybody in Jerusalem knows about it. But to keep them from spreading their propaganda any further, we must warn them not to speak to anyone in Jesus' name again. 
So they called the apostles back in and commanded them never again to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? We cannot stop telling about everything that we have seen and heard. The council then threatened them further, but they finally let them go because they didn't know how to punish them without starting a riot. For everyone was praising God for this miraculous sign, the healing of a man who had been lame for more than 40 years. Thank you. The term gospel literally means good news. And what I want to look at is the good news, the gospel, through four different lenses as we look at this text. I want to look at the consequences of the gospel, the message of the gospel, the messengers of the gospel, and the response to the gospel. So consequences, message, messengers, and response. I know some of you are really nervous because you're like, Normally, there's only three points. Now there's four, and it's hot. What's going on here? Don't worry. We're going to be fine. Take a deep breath. We'll get through this together. All right, so let's start with the consequences. Um, Peter declares at the end of Acts chapter 3 this evangelistic sermon, and there are consequences for the the evangelistic sermon. Like I said, in Acts chapter 2, it was very one-sided. 3,000 men come to faith. But in Acts chapter 3, the response at the beginning of 4 is not quite as one-sided. So you do have another 2,000 men and families, based on your math, uh, come to faith, thereabouts at least. But you also have Peter and John being arrested. So uh, you have two people arrested and the gospel going forth. John Stott in his commentary makes a very wry comment that um, Peter and John are arrested, but the gospel isn't. So two go to prison and 2,000 align themselves with the gospel of Jesus. The, the truth of God continues to go forward, but Peter and John are arrested. And it begs the question for the first time in the book of Acts, why this opposition to the good news? Or said another way, why is it that the good news is not good news for everybody? Isn't the good news good news for everybody? Well, yes is the answer to the question, but if you dig in a little bit, you're going to see that the good news is good news for everybody because Jesus comes to rescue those who are powerless. So those who are powerful, in order to receive the good news, need to become powerless. And so the good news is not always good news to those who are in power. And that's what happened here. The good news is going forward. There's this healing that happened that cannot be denied. And instead, the the response of those who are in power is to pull Peter and John in, arrest them, and, and strategize against the message of the gospel going forward. Why? Because it's not good news for them. They're in power. Now, this wouldn't have been shocking to Peter and John, because Peter and John were told by Jesus that things like this would happen. He, was, he told them, you're going to get drug in front of the court, and you're going to be given the words to say, so be ready for that. In the last long teaching in the book of John, John 14 to 16, that Jesus teaches his disciples before he goes to the garden and ultimately to the cross, he, there are these two kind of conflicting messages in those three chapters. One message is, All of the people around you will know that you're Christians because of the love that you have. And the conflicting message, they hated me, so they're going to hate you too. 
So what is it? Are, are we going to be known by love or are we going to be known by hate? Are we going to be uh, having love that goes forward or hate that comes in towards us? There's a tension, there's a paradox that's kind of built into that. And so what happens is we often fall off one side or the other. We often either go to the place where the message is all about love and we've removed any of the offense that's possibly in the gospel, out of the gospel, so much so that the gospel no longer challenges us to move in any direction. There, there's no opportunity for us to be thrown in jail or drug in front of people or even challenged in a conversation because we've removed all of the offense from the gospel. That's no longer the gospel message. What not just Jesus, but Paul and the apostles make clear is, the, is that the gospel has offense in it. For those who are powerful, for those who are in control, for those who have what they need on their own, the gospel creates offense. By the way, I just described 95% of America, powerful and in control and having what we need on our own. The gospel should have a level of offense. But then some fall off on the other side, where they say, well, if the gospel is going to be offensive anyway, I might as well just beat people over the head with it, right? I might as well just kind of come in, bowl in a china shop, and tell everybody all the stuff. I could tell you stories, because we've encountered some people like this at various times. It's not always fun, right? Uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2, I'm not going to go there. You can look it up on your own. Peter has this great way of speaking to that. Uh, he says in 1 Peter chapter 2, if you suffer for righteousness sake, that's good. But then, and I'm going to paraphrase here, he, he says, if you suffer because you're a jerk, that's just because you're a jerk. Now, that's a paraphrase, but it's only a little bit of a paraphrase. It's pretty close to what he says. He, like, if you suffer because you're unrighteous, if you're a nasty person, that's just the way it goes. Like, cut it out. Stop being nasty. But it could be that you're a loving person who's suffering for your righteousness, in which case that's to be expected. There's this tension that's built into the gospel where the gospel should have consequence if we're speaking the truth of the gospel. Willie James Jennings, in his, uh, his commentary, has an excellent statement about this. He says this, The great illusion of followers of Jesus, especially those who imagine themselves leaders, is that they could live a path different from Jesus and his disciples. They believe somehow that they can be loved, or at least liked, or at least tolerated, or even ignored by those with real power in the world. And I love that quote because of how quickly he moves from loved to liked to tolerated to at least ignored. His point is the real gospel message can't even be ignored by the people who are in power in the world around us. If we're being honest about the gospel, if we're declaring the truth of the message of the scriptures, there will be pushback of some kind. That doesn't mean that everybody will hate us all the time. It doesn't mean that we're constantly looking for persecution, but it does mean if our pathway through the gospel is always smooth, we should reasonably question the message that we're speaking. So what is the message of the gospel? Well, Peter's literally asked that. In verse 7, they said, by what power or by what name did you do this? And Peter gives a four-point sermon. It's way shorter than mine, which I know does not shock you, uh, but in, a, in, very, in four very clear points, Peter says, here's the gospel. Number one, you crucified Jesus. It's your fault. Number two, Jesus conquered death, rose again from the dead. Number three, the power of God and the kingdom of God is continuing to go forward, and you can't stop it. 
And number four, Jesus' name is the only name by which men and women can be saved. That's the gospel. Clear and simple. Peter says, here's the deal. All of you and me were sinners, and because of our sin, Jesus had to die. You crucified Jesus. I crucified Jesus. We're the problem. We don't bring anything good to the equation. We only bring our mess. But Jesus, who died on our behalf, conquered sin and death and hell. So the gospel is not just that we are broken, but that Jesus has conquered our brokenness and came out victorious. And that message and the kingdom is continuing to go forward, and there's nothing anyone or anything can do to stop it. And so the vitally important part of the gospel that we often miss is that you may respond positively to the gospel, or you may respond negatively to the gospel, or you may respond apathetically to the gospel, and that has to do with you and God, but the kingdom's going forward no matter what. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. That our response to the gospel is not the point, and if we conspire to stop the gospel movement, we will never succeed. And then the fourth thing, the most controversial statement, that there is no other name under heaven by which men and women can be saved. Now that's incredibly controversial because it's so exclusionary. In the world around us, there's this statement that, um, that, that it's, it's, very, um, it's very absolute, and that absolute statement can't be made. You absolutely can't make that absolute statement. You can figure that out later on your own. Uh, the one thing that is absolutely true in our current culture is that there can be no absolutes, right? And, and what you have here is, is Peter saying, there is no other name under heaven by which men and women can be saved. He uses the Greek word sozo, and it means uh, not just a future, but a present and a past. And so what Peter is saying is not this, this slice of the gospel that we often talk about, which is our future in heaven, but he actually says that, that salvation is about entering into the kingdom that has been and is moving forward, that is right now, that we get to be a part of, and that will be in our future and in one tiny little sliver when he comes again and we have a new heaven and a new earth. All of those things are all a part of what Peter envisions as salvation. Now, that's not just an exclusionary challenge for the world around us. I would submit to you that it's a problem for a lot of us within the church, if we're honest. Here's what I mean. Not that we wouldn't say that Jesus is the way, the only way, but that our lives would have Jesus plus something else equaling salvation. The message of the gospel is that Jesus alone is the only way to the Father. There is no other name under heaven by which men and women can be saved. But for many of us, when that the other part of the equation, whatever it is, is challenged, salvation seems to like drop out underneath us. So for instance, Jesus plus my political freedom equals salvation. Don't challenge the second thing because that it's, it's bound up with the first thing. Jesus plus political freedom equals salvation. Or Jesus plus material prosperity equals salvation. Like if, if he really loved me, he would give me what I want. He'd give me what I need. He'd give me more than enough. He'd give me an abundance. 
Don't challenge that second thing because the first thing's bound up in it. Or Jesus plus my comfort and ease. Or Jesus plus me getting my own way. Fill in the blank. Because for many of us, the challenge is not Jesus. The challenge is that we want Jesus and something else, and that makes salvation. Peter says the message of the gospel is that there is no other name under heaven by which men and women can be saved. So Luke records this gift for us, this very concise explanation of the gospel. And then he shifts his lens from the message to the messenger. Let me read in verse 13. He says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Now that gets explained a lot of different ways. When, um, when it says that the Sanhedrin, through their lens, saw that Peter and John were uneducated, common men, he doesn't mean dumb, poor people. Um, they, they may have been, and it's not that God couldn't use those people, but that's not what they were saying. What they're saying is, when they say uneducated, they're literally saying they hadn't been trained in rabbinical school. They hadn't gone through the training that a rabbi would need to go through. So in our modern, modern parlance, they hadn't been to seminary yet. They, they, they haven't gone through the training and when it says that they're common people, he doesn't mean poor or lower class. What he means is they, they were not clergymen. They were not uh, rabbis or priests. They, they weren't serving in a specific role. They, they were non-seminary trained lay people, like most of us. They, they were people who didn't have all of the I's dotted and all the T's crossed. They, they didn't have a specific position from which to preach but they had been with Jesus. And that's what they noticed. That the, the transformation that happens when Peter takes uh, this one thing, the healing of this man, and applies it to all things, the power of God to sal salvation for anybody who would come. What he's saying is th this brilliant act of rhetoric doesn't come from them. It doesn't come from their training. It doesn't come from their position or their skill. It comes from the fact that they've been with Jesus. So hopefully I don't have to connect all the dots for you that when we talk about discipleship, we talk about three actions of discipleship. And the first of those three actions is to be with Jesus. That being with Jesus actually creates something in us, that there's this power of the Spirit that supernaturally is a part of those who spend time with Jesus. That the reason we're called as disciples to be in Jesus' presence is that we would be filled with the Spirit to be able to do the things that he's called us to do in the world around us. And so we want to increasingly be with him, spend more and more time with him. The way I talk about it is we want to learn to be in two places at once, that wherever we are and whatever we're doing, whatever our responsibilities are, we can be there and with Jesus, that we're constantly what Brother Lawrence called practicing the presence of Jesus in the world around us. So there's these two messengers of the gospel, uneducated common men who together show that they have been with Jesus. But that's not the only messenger. Uh, look at verse 14. Uh, Luke, as he's recording, kind of jabs at the Sanhedrin here. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. That word standing is used very intentionally because he wasn't standing this morning, right? Like this, this guy's standing there and they're saying, hmm, what do we do with this? Because everybody knows that guy. Everybody's seen him lame at the door of the temple. Now he's in here with us 
standing there, which creates a response from the Sanhedrin and one that I think is important for us to wrestle with. The word for standing in Greek is the word stasis, which doesn't mean anything until you know that the word resurrection in Greek is anastasis. See, what's happening here is this man is standing beside them, and Peter and John are inviting all that would listen into a life of resurrection. Because in the Greek mind, death was laying down, and so standing up again was resurrection. And here's this man standing among them. And it creates this need for a response. You see them kind of wrestling with it. Um, when they had commanded, this is verse 15, when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Now pause there. Listen to what they just said. They said, here's this guy. He's standing here. We see him. Everybody else sees him. There is no denying that a powerful, notable sign has been performed among us. We just saw this happen. Verse 17. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. There's so much that happens in the gap between those two sentences. And in the gap between those two sentences, you find the full response to the gospel. This has happened. This thing has happened. And any time a powerful work of God happens among us, in your life individually, in uh, the community around you, that you see God doing something, any time a powerful work of God happens, there are two responses that, that can happen. One of them is to ignore it. Pretend like it didn't happen. Excuse it away. Wow, that's coincidental, isn't it? Can you imagine how that happened? Wow, that's really remarkable. Huh, luck. Man, it's incredible how that goes. You can explain it away, or you can reorient your entire life around what is now true. And there isn't an in-between. I'm either choosing to ignore all or part of it, or I'm reorienting my life around it. And the gap between verse 16 and verse 17 is the Sanhedrin saying, it costs too much. Sorry, we saw it happen. We know it's a powerful work. We know that God did this remarkable thing. We see that there's something happening too much. We're not going to do it because we would lose all of our power. We would lose all of our control. We would have to admit that we were wrong about all of these things, that they were right about all of these things. We'd have to reorient the entire temple system, this real cushy relationship we have with the Romans. The whole thing would have to fall apart in order for this to be true. So we know this happened, but we're ignoring it. I think as followers of Jesus, we come to a passage like Acts chapter 4, and we desire to identify with Peter and John. Like, are, would we be as bold as they would be? If we were called in front of people and questioned, would I be as bold as them? Would I trust that God would give me the words by his spirit to be able to say to someone who is challenging me, or am I afraid that I won't have the right words? W would I uh, stand up for what I believe to be true about the gospel? These are good questions, right questions for us, us to ask. But can I gently push back that the persons that we should be identifying with in this story 
are more likely the Sanhedrin. Those who have seen the power of God and are saying, orienting my entire life around that would cost way too much. Like, let, me, let me be really frank. It's pretty easy to order your Sunday mornings around that. And what else are you going to do? Go have brunch somewhere? Sleep in a little bit? It's not that difficult. It's not that difficult to reorder an evening or two a week around that. It's not that difficult to order 15 or 20 minutes a day at the beginning of the day around that. It is really difficult to order all of your energy and all of your resources and all of your time and all of your relationships around the reality of who Jesus is. And I would argue that there are many of us, like the Sanhedrin, who are looking at this and in that pause between the sentences, I saw God do that work. I know he did it. I saw it happen. Let's move on. Let's pretend it didn't happen. And we're not saying that out loud, but we're unwilling to do the work to organize our entire lives around it. One of the ways that we respond to any text is finding ourselves in the text. And so I want to challenge us as we respond today to find ourselves in the text. There are certainly some of us who have said, Jesus is the Lord of all things. He has come to offer me salvation. His good news is good news for me. And you are seeking to orient all of life the way that you think and the way that you act and the way that you spend and the way that you uh, relate, all of those things. You're, you're seeking to orient them all around him. And for you, the invitation is to continue to be with him, to come back to that be with Jesus thing and spend more and more time with him. Frank Laubach, the missionary to the Philippines, uh, developed this thing that he called the game with minutes. And his whole idea was spend as many minutes as possible in the presence of Jesus while he's doing all the other stuff that he was doing. He has this beautiful diary of all of these different ways that he tried to, uh, to train his heart to be in the presence of Jesus. That's the invitation. For those who have said, I'm reorienting my life around him, we just spend more and more time with him, that we would be changed by him, that we would be more like him, that we would do the things that he does in the world around us. And there's some that are on the full other side. There are um, maybe some of the Sanhedrin and certainly the Roman uh, people that are around the outside of the temple that are seeing all of this happen, that, that, are, that are here and saying, look, I am, I am not there yet. Like, I'm not sure I buy this. I'm not sure what all this stuff is about. Um, I'm not sure I believe all of these details. I'm not ordering my life around that. And I would say, first and foremost, you're welcome here. And we want this to be a place where it's very safe for you to say that, for you to wrestle with that. Like, we, we all need to wrestle with that. But here's what I want to encourage you to do. Be honest about it. Don't pretend like you're somewhere that you're not. Wrestle with it. We, this is a safe place for you to wrestle with that. We are doing everything that we can do to make this a safe place for you to wrestle with that. But most of us are not on one side or the other side. We're right in the middle. We've seen the power of God, and we've started to orient a few things around it, but we're not sure that we can grab onto it fully. And if that's where you're at, 
I want to encourage you that the God of the universe desires your whole heart. And so he is going to lovingly and ruthlessly, one at a time, show you the things that stand in the way. And so all we have to do is respond. Okay, Lord, that's the next thing. That's the next area. This is the thing that's standing in the way. This is the way that I've desired to be my own Lord. This is the thing that I've held on to. This is my security. This is my control. And all of those things start to be handed over to him, one at a time. It, it doesn't have to be this overwhelming step off a cliff. It's a step-by-step, moment-by-moment, giving up of self that we relinquish to him.